This week on the Back Table Podcast. A lot of this is still uh, new throughout uh, places throughout the country, but this Venus constru- reconstruction uh, idea, it really does work. And uh, I don't think I can stress that enough. I mean, there are so many patients that uh, have chronic DV, have either acute DVT, chronic DVT, have thrombose filters, and they're maintained on anticoagulation for life. And uh, these patients are, you know, they're suffering uh, from lower extremity swelling. Uh, Their activities of daily life are severely curtailed. But this does work. And in experienced hands, it actually works quite well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast with Backtable, your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. This is Mike Barraza returning as your host. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us and invite you to visit the iTunes store to check out our app, which is newly updated and still free of charge. Uh, We'll continue to intermittently add new content to the app aimed at helping you, the interventional radiologist, uh, including back past episodes of our podcast, which addresses various topics of interest across our specialty. Today, we're talking... uh, chronic lower extremity venous disease and post-thrombotic syndrome secondary to DVT. Joining us from the University of Michigan are Drs. Jeffrey Chick and Ravi Srinivasa, who have helped establish their institution as somewhat of a mecca for management of this condition. Uh, So first of all, thank you both for taking the time to do this. It's an honor to have you both with me today. Uh, And so I thought we'd start with introductions. Uh, Tell us who you are, how you got there, and about the role chronic venous disease plays in your current practice, starting with you, Ravi. Yeah, so uh, I'm Ravi Srinivasan. Nice to have, uh, nice to talk to you, all of you guys. Um, so I trained at the University of Pennsylvania, and then I went off to uh, University of Texas in Houston for three years in practice over there. My practice had a lot of venous disease over there as well. Um, we did a fair amount of chronic venous reconstruction, re- iliocable reconstruction, and uh, you know, uh, iliocable recanalization there as well. And joined University of Michigan about two and a half years ago and have been in practice over here. And uh, this practice is unparalleled in terms of the amount of venous disease that we see and the amount of iliocable reconstruction cases that come up. Um, And we see a lot of complex iliocable cases, um, thanks to Dr. Williams, um, who's kind of built a huge practice here. Um, And uh, as a result, uh, we we see some of the most complex um, cases of venous uh, occlusive disease that you might see. All right, Jeffrey, your turn. Sounds good. Thanks, Ravi. I'm Jeffrey Chick. Uh, I also trained at the University of Pennsylvania, like you guys as well. And I've been here at the University of Michigan for about a year and a half uh, now. As Ravi said, uh, we have a tremendous amount of both uh, acute and chronic uh, deep venous thrombosis patients here. Uh, I think in part uh, due to Dr. Williams and Dr. Wakefield, who have been here for several years, And we're sort of fortunate to see the whole gamut, uh, I think, from simple acute uh, DVT and DVT lysis to the uh, most complex uh, iliocable reconstruction, both upper uh, extremity uh, and upper body DVT and lower extremity as well. We sort of deal with uh, the whole gamut uh, from their initial presentation to their treatment here and then uh, their long-term follow-up as well. And uh, thank you guys again for having me today. Hey, Jeff, when I was looking through the department website, I saw you're a member of the Venus Health Program. What Mm -hmm. is that? So uh, it is sort of a combined effort by uh, many of us here on both the vascular surgery side, the vascular medicine side, and uh, interventional radiology. 
So patients with a whole host of uh, venous diseases, whether it be, say, uh, varicose veins or deep venous thrombosis or chronic venous disease or post-thrombotic syndrome, anything, uh, including lymphatic diseases, lymphedema, uh, they're te- uh, typically routed through this venous health clinic. And they're seen by either a vascular surgeon, an interventional radiologist, or vascular medicine physicians. And we kind of cooperatively uh, decide how to manage these patients uh, if they need a procedure and uh, the post-procedure care and anticoagulation. So we see them in clinic, uh, usually two dedicated days a week, usually Thursdays and Fridays, but we see them uh, other days as well. And it's sort of just a joint venture to uh, manage these patients appropriately. We have a uh, M&M associated with this. We have uh, monthly or bi-monthly meetings uh, to discuss uh, various protocols and treatment options. It's sort of a uh, holistic approach to uh, managing these complex patients. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm sure that, that plays a considerable role in, in how successful you guys have been. And uh, I know you guys are also doing a lot of really exciting lymphatic stuff. And it would be awesome to bring you guys back on to talk about that on a future date. Um but narrowing our focus today on chronic DVT, DVT and post-thrombotic syndrome, uh, you know, in my, my vast experience of, of two years in this field, uh, I've noticed what it appears to be a relative mismatch between the prevalence of this disease and the number of IRs out there that are treating it. Ravi, do you think that's a, a reasonable assessment? And if so, why do you think that's the case? I think there's there's a lot of variability in training in the techniques for uh, iliocable reconstruction and and. As you guys know, and anyone who does iliocable reconstruction and recanalization knows it, it requires a lot of patience and a lot of persistence. And I think in a lot of probably private settings, you may not see it as frequently as you would in the academic setting where you see these complex recanalizations. And for that, for that matter, you know, a lot of the patients that we get referred have been had prior attempts at recanalization at other outside institutions okay. or other outside private practices and then get sent to us to... Um, to potentially reattempt uh, recanalization, uh, and a lot of these procedures can be very long, and you know can take upwards of four to six hours occasionally, depending on the uh, degree and extent of occlusion. And some of them require more advanced techniques, and not just blunt recanalization, but may require sharp recanalization and other more advanced strategies of targeting, uh, et cetera. Uh, but uh, I think that's one aspect of it that that makes it. Uh, a little more challenging as to why not a lot of practitioners are doing it throughout the country. I think having also, like Jeff was saying, the Venus Health Program is very key to the success of the the Venus Reconstruction Program here in particular because you need that multidisciplinary kind of management strategy and being, you know, just doing the recanalization is one thing, but the management of the patient afterwards, ensuring they're appropriately anticoagulated and that um, that their stents, if it's a stent reconstruction, stay open um, is is one of the most important things in these patients, and the reason why we follow them quite uh, regularly uh, okay. after they have a reconstruction done. Yeah, I mean, in my own community, there are only a handful of us that are routinely accepting these consults, and I, I think at least here, one of the greatest barriers to widening our reach is just the general lack of awareness across the medical community, both about this disease and the available treatment options. So I thought, you know, before we dive into all of this, it might be helpful to start with some basics to get everybody on the same page. Just starting with terminology, Jeff, would you mind walking us through how you define acute versus chronic DVT and where post-thrombotic syndrome fits in? Sure, of course. Uh, so typically, uh, I guess you can think of it more of a clinically uh, a clinical approach versus a radiographic approach. 
in general. In general, I think of acute DVT as being based on time frame, sort of a DVT that has been present for about two weeks or less. And in general, you can get a lower extremity or an upper extremity ultrasound in these patients. And you see more of, say, a bulky uh, thrombus in the vein. Uh, at that point, it's something that uh, sort of can be managed uh, acutely and removed uh, quite successfully. As time goes on, sort of the uh, two-week to four-week range, you think a little bit of uh, more of a subacute component or a subacute DVT at that point. Okay. Uh, that's a DVT that still has some of the fluffy mobile components, but is starting to become more organized and starting to become more attached to the valves or the vein wall. And then as you kind of move out to, uh, say, four weeks or even, say, four months afterwards, that's more of the uh, chronic uh, deep venous thrombosis phase. And those are sort of uh, DVTs that are no longer fluffy and mobile. They've started to organize, attach themselves to the wall and sort of uh, integrate themselves into the vein wall and become more, more or less a walled off component of the wall itself. Okay. Um so I know you guys have you know unique scenario with uh, the Venus Health Program, and you know you're seeing this in a multidisciplinary setting. But in general, how do most of your patients get there? Where are they mostly referred from? Surprisingly, uh, several of them uh, they come from inpatient consults. Here, I think a little bit of it is the awareness, uh, as you suggested for uh, before, Mike. I think uh, I'm not sure if it's a shift in culture here or just more awareness in general, but I think there was a little bit of a mismatch between uh, traditional therapies for deep venous thrombosis and sort of uh, contemporary or new ideas. So at a lot of other centers, perhaps uh, physicians or practitioners are not aware of all the other, of all options or say potential catheter directed lysis or pharmacomechanical thrombectomy or so forth. But over time, I think here we've been fortunate to have done so many of these cases that uh, our practitioners are are aware that there are other treatment options besides the mainstay anticoagulation. So a lot of our patients come from uh, inpatient consults with uh, patients who have acute or chronic DVT and have lower extremity swelling or pain. Uh, we do get quite a few patients uh, from out of the state as well. Uh, a lot of our patients, as Ravi alluded to earlier, are patients who have had uh, failed reconstruction or failed recanalization at other centers throughout the United States. And for what it's worth, I think uh, just some of our physicians who have been here for a long period of time, uh, such as Dr. Williams, has uh, gained a reputation uh, for being successful in many of these cases. Now, so focusing on your clinical assessment of these patients, uh, you know, what are the main reasons most of these patients focus on iliocaval and below? You know, what are the symptoms and the, and the major clinical issues that, that get these patients sent to your clinic? These are patients who have either acute or longstanding uh, lower extremity pain and swelling are the uh, predominant things. Uh, most of these patients, you know, have uh, either bilateral lower extremity or one greater than the other uh, long-term pain and swelling. In extreme cases, okay. patients Patients can have uh, acute onset say, or chronic ulcers or gross phlegmasia. But for the most part, it's long-term pain and swelling. So, Jeff, you know, in terms of history and exam, et cetera, you know, 
what are you looking for to identify candidates uh, for revascularization versus, uh, you know, more conservative measures? Of course. Uh, so I think uh, the predominant thing is the degree of pain and swelling. Uh, the guidelines are a little bit variable throughout there. Uh, some of the United States guidelines versus uh, the European or CIRSI guidelines or vascular surgery guidelines. But in general, you want uh, patients who have, say, more advanced pain and uh, lower extremity swelling, such as a CEP3 uh, or CEP4 through uh, CEP6 disease. Um, that's sort of the hallmark of those of the uh, patients that benefit from lysis and uh, possible reconstruction. But in general, uh, it's, as you alluded to, kind of good to take a uh, good whole history on these patients and sort of get an idea of when did these symptoms develop? Is it over days? Is it over weeks? Is it over months? Because uh, that kind of helps you decide, is this more of an acute problem that lysis may be appropriate for? Or is this more of a chronic problem that uh, straight reconstruction is necessary uh, to fix this. There are lots of other things that you can, that are important as well. Uh, sort of documenting the degree of functional impairment. Uh, if these patients have multiple other comorbidities, such as cardiac comorbidities, morbidities or pulmonary comorbidities that could affect anesthesia. It's also uh, very important to see if they have under any underlying uh, prothrombotic abnormal abnormalities, such as, uh, you know, oral contraceptives, recent surgeries, anything like uh, genetic, like factor five lighting or so forth, uh, because these play a role in the uh, additional management after reconstructing these patients and can play a role in the anticoagulation that we use. So Jeff, what our audience doesn't know is that, you know, you helped me through a couple cases of my own, both an acute and a chronic case. uh, And uh, you shared a couple articles that came out of Michigan in the last few years to help me plan some of my cases. And the content was fantastic. And, and it really clearly detailed how your group approaches these patients from start to finish, both clinically and technically. And so, you know, what I'll try to do is when I post the podcast, we'll, we'll try to remember to include links to those articles because they are amazing. Uh, but I was hoping you could clarify one point uh, I noticed in the discussion of the indications for treatment. It's the uh, article from David Williams that you had sent from Techniques in VIR. And uh, the quote in the article says, if we've missed the window of two to four weeks for thrombolysis, we prefer to treat a patient medically until about four months when the thrombus has contracted and is partially organized. Uh, Jeffrey, what's the value of waiting for that period before you start treating? So it's funny you should kind of mention that because uh, Ravi and I were just talking about that the other day. So I think a lot of this is theoretic, and but uh, also comes with, I think, extensive experience here. So the idea is that if you have more of an acute thrombus, uh, say two weeks or less, uh, and in that case you were placing stents, the stents would uh, fully expand on their own and uh, touch or be in contact with the wall and give you the uh, appropriate lumen size. Okay. Where sort of if you're in the two to four-ish weeks, you're, the thrombus is organizing but still bulky, and uh, at that point, if you try to perform angioplasty or try to stent, the stents may not fully expand to the uh, degree that you would hope to get a good lumen. If you wait uh, until the thrombus has totally organized and totally uh, become uh, a component of the wall, you may be able to stretch the wall. You may be able to get the stent diameter to the largest possible diameter 
and in theory, uh, provide the largest amount of flow through that vessel. So I think a lot of it is theoretic. uh, And I can't say that everyone has those practices, but our practice is either try to treat uh, if the patient presents within two weeks. And if you can't treat in that window, uh, medically manage them and optimize uh, the patients with compression stockings until everything has fully organized and uh, then perform any sort of iliocable reconstruction or venous reconstruction so that the stents can expand to their full diameter. Okay. Well, I mean, we also want to coagulate them during that time as well. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And theoretical or not, you guys certainly have a pretty good track record. Uh, another one of my favorite quotes from that, that same paper is we consider no venous thrombosis too old to recanalize and no mode of IVC interruption irreversible. And Jeffrey, your own study that you published in JVIR on ilia cable reconstruction for filter associated thrombosis it corroborates that sentiment based on the 100% technical success rate in your investigation. Uh, and I like the idea of taking that optimism to lead into our discussion of the technical approach, because, you know, these cases, uh, as, as Ravi hinted, you know, can have a daunting reputation for turning into marathons. Uh, and so, you know, another thing I took from reviewing these articles and talking to, to Jeff is, uh, you know, it's a reminder that the general treatment strategies and the equipment used seem to be relatively simple. Do you guys agree? Yeah, I think uh, overall the equipment's relatively simple. And I, I think a lot of institutions use similar things to as far as conservative approaches to approaching chronic DVT. I mean, traditionally you use an angled catheter and a glide wire, and that's usually all you need to try to do most uh, iliocable reconstructions. And when you get into the advanced techniques, such as using you know needles and sharp uh, sharp recanalization with BRK needles or Roshishita needles. Um, that's when you start to kind of push the limits a little bit and it gets a little bit riskier and you have to take the appropriate precautions and strategies to make sure that, uh, that things go smoothly okay. and go well without a complication. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's kind of tough to, to really address all this as one single topic because these can go in so many different directions and require lots of different techniques. So one thing I thought that might be helpful is to, to have you guys walk us through a hypothetical case from start to finish. Uh, and, uh, you know, one I thought we might use is one that I'd, I'd run by Jeff. And this was a, a young patient, like 32 years old, who had had uh, DVT like 15 years before. And this is unilateral leg swelling and on imaging was just uh, completely occluded from the origin of his left common iliac vein all the way down below the knee. Um, but before we get into that, I, I wanted to ask you guys some basic things. Ravi, when you uh, you get these patients on the table, do you plan to do these with moderate sedation, general anesthesia? Do you have a, a typical way you go about them? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of varies, and we kind of discuss it with the patient ahead of time. And based on, on the patient's comfort level, we'll try to do them under moderate sedation if possible. If we know we're going to be doing sharp recanalization because we know it's a chronic occlusion that's been re- attempted previously and we've... Uh, are bringing them back for sharp recanalization. We'll usually do them under general anesthesia, so we have all the support we need in case something goes wrong. You know, Ravi, how do you manage the pre impaired procedural anticoagulation? So uh, I usually uh, have. So I usually hold the anticoagulation um, prior to the procedure. Usually, if if the patient's on Coumadin or uh, whatnot, we hold it for a, f- a few days and make sure the INR is below two. I, I know that's also a kind of a little bit of a controversial practice. Some people do it while the patient do recanalization while the patient's on therapeutic anticoagulation. Actually, Jeff and I were just discussing this while we were revising a, a paper that we were also working on for another journal. Um, 
And uh, so, but we usually hold anticoagulation prior to doing the recanalization just because of the risk that you might create a false channel per se during the recanalization. And if you do create a false passageway, you want that to close up. And if you have a okay. patient on anticoagulation, in theory, they might be at risk for that, that tract bleeding that you created a false passage. So, um, and that ends up being a pretty common thing that happens when you're doing iliocable reconstruction is that you go in through one pathway and it ends up not being the right way. And you have to pull back pull back your catheter, give up your purchase and start over again and try to find the correct pathway to finally make it up to the, to the cava. If, in the example of using doing an iliocable reconstruction. Um, the, the other interesting thing about the way we do iliocable reconstruction here that I think may be different from other institutions and even was a little different than how it was practiced in, in my other previous practices um, was we do most of these patients with the patient supine and we do access from the jugular vein and then bilateral femoral veins or bilateral saphenous veins and then frog leg the leg to get popliteal access. At some places, I think people do a lot of DVTs with the patient prone, but I feel like that kind of limits your options in, uh, in terms of being able to do a successful reconstruction and being able to approach a DVT from both directions and being able to approach it from the jugular vein uh, from above and then also coming from below from a femoral approach and then also being able to access behind the knee by just frog legging the leg. I think it allows for, for much uh, greater success in doing uh, iliocable reconstruction. And I wonder if part of the reason why a lot of places may not be successful is because they choose to put the patient prone and it really limits their ability to get a, a successful reconstruction a lot of the time. Absolutely. I took that advice from Jeff on a recent case, and it made a huge difference, if only in terms of just convenience and, and time, like not having to just flip the patient over and everything. Um, so looking at this this hypothetical case, uh, this patient clotted off from the origin of his left common iliac vein all the way below the knee. Uh, let's kind of talk about treatment strategies, you know, the, the rationale. Like what, what all do you have to get done for this to be uh, successful, both technically and clinically? So I think as you uh, sort of alluded to and uh, something we didn't exactly touch on was, uh, which is important, I think the imaging before you even attempt to do this. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so you, you have an idea of what's going on. Uh, you have an occlusion of the common iliac, uh, but is there any more? Uh, what exactly is going on? And I think uh, imaging definitely helps in your planning. So historically, I think a lot of uh, individuals get lower extremity ultrasounds, which certainly show that you have either acute or chronic thrombosis of the lower extremity veins. But uh, I certainly find that uh, CT venogram or MR venography is very helpful. Uh, okay. it, makes, it makes your planning, I mean, it just, you can plan in advance what you're going to do. And especially as Ravi talked uh, several times before, if you're going to do sharp recanalization, uh, especially around the iliocable confluence uh, where the aorta and iliac arteries are present, it's very nice to have a uh, preferably a CT venogram uh, so you know where the vessels are and you uh, avoid any complications in the future. So as you sort of alluded to and Ravi alluded to as well, uh, your goal is to get across that occluded segment completely. And uh, part of the benefit of keeping the patients on their back is that you have multiple different approaches to do that. Uh, so as Robbie said, uh, you can start with the IJ, you can start with the femoral or saphenous accesses, and you can also use the popliteal access. 
And uh, sort of a combination of all of those approaches helps you with the ultimate goal, uh, which is to get across, get something across that uh, occlusion there. So I can't tell you how many times uh, people fail just because they only have that one option of going popliteal and you, cause you really can't stick the IJ. You can't obviously stick the femoral veins and, and, and because you're coming from a popliteal approach, you, you just can't get across the occlusion. And uh, so I think it's extraordinarily helpful to have the patient in a supine position when you're doing these uh, complex iliocable reconstructions. For somebody who's clotted off all the way down chronically, how much ground do you have to make? I mean, do you need to get all the way across from, you know, basically from the knee through uh, the cava in order to be successful? Or is it is it reasonable to just open up the thigh? So I, th- I think uh, the jury's out on some of that. We don't have a lot of data and uh, many people feel strongly one way or the other. Uh, you certainly need, it's very important to have a very good inflow whether it comes some inflow from the deep venous system, whether it's from uh, the profunda or from uh, the femoral vein, uh, you just, you need good inflow from the thigh. We've been particularly successful with just having good inflow from the popliteal upwards uh, through uh, the reconstructed segments. And uh, that seems to work well in our cases, in our experience, Others have advocated for uh, obtaining access and opening uh, the veins all the way to the posterior tibial veins. And one may be better than the other. I just think at this time, we don't really have a great study or a great answer to say which is best. That's fair. Um, So just thinking about this patient again, you know, clotted basically the whole leg, iliac all the way down. Uh, do you start with the jugular or does it matter? Like, I mean, how do you determine what your first access site is going to be? And does that approach change if uh, the patient's got a filter? Certainly. So I think, uh, I guess it's helpful to know a little bit more. I mean, do you think the, in your particular case, is there, is this a true, say, May Thurner type case? Or is the, is there some thrombus in the IVC or is the right leg involved at all? Um, do you have any of that information? Yeah, nothing in the right leg, nothing in the IVC. Uh, it would appear would probably be, I mean, my, my guess is probably 75% sure this is May Turner, but this is also quote unquote provoked and that it was uh, kind of a post-traumatic DVT. And so we'll see, but it is, you know, based on the distribution, likely May Turner, but nothing okay. else. So, I mean, uh, everyone is a little bit variable. Uh, that's why I like the, uh, for me personally, I like a CTV beforehand which kind of helps me plan and see uh, what vessels are open and where I'm going to have a uh, sort of inline track or a straight track to get through the occlusion. I typically personally start with the right internal jugular approach, place usually an eight French sheath uh, in the uh, vessel there. And uh, I attempt to get across an occlusion using, as Robbie said, some sort of angled catheter and either a straight stiff glide wire or an angled glide wire, an angled stiff glide wire. Um, I like the IJ approach myself, uh, particularly if the patient has a filter in place, uh, because I usually, uh, in the case of chronic thrombosis, will remove the filter myself if I can. And from an IJ approach, I can place a 16 French sheath. I can, in most cases, these are chronic long dwelling filters and it can use endobronchial forceps to remove it. And that's usually how I begin. 
but I can't say that it's always that way and people are a little bit variable. Probably do you like IJ as well to begin? Yeah, I prefer IJ. I would probably approach this from like an IJ and maybe also get ephemeral access depending on how things are going. I guess it just depends on how easy it is to to cross the occlusion and how much of the occlusion is extending up into the iliac vein uh, or how high up it extends into the iliac vein as to whether you'll have some purchase to be able to get into from the cava from above to get mm-hmm. into that left common iliac vein to be able to recanalize and start your recanalization. I agree with Jeff. You got to use a supportive sheath. A long eight French sheath is key uh, in these cases because you need support to be able to try to recanalize with a with a uh, angle tip glide wire. Just trying to do it with a short sheath and an angled catheter, you're not going to be successful with the with straight stiff or with whatever glide wire. You you won't be successful uh, unless you have the support of having a, a, a sheath all the way down, and you need to be able to get some purchase into that left common iliac vein. Okay, that uh, makes sense. But if for whatever reason you can't get it purchased, then I would certainly try from ephemeral approach or or what we've been doing is a saphenous approach, which is uh, also an acceptable approach uh, and uh, as far as approaching from the groin. So let's talk about how you make your progress. I mean, when, you know, you've got your angle glide, I mean, your angle tip catheter and you've got your, your glide wire, but how are you trying to get across this uh, both from above and below? You know, I mean, at what point do you switch and, and how are you crossing this in general in, in most cases? So I think a little bit what uh, Ravi alluded to, and I will, I can't echo it enough. Uh, I think a huge uh, mistake that people make is a little bit of the wrong equipment. And as Ravi said, you need a long enough sheath to buttress yourself up against the occlusion. Uh, you can try all day with the uh, a short sheath and uh, sort of a floppy catheter and you'll never generate enough force or enough drilling force in the area that you need to get through that chronic occlusion. So that's the first thing is having a long sheath right up against the occlusion. And uh, as you kind of both suggested, I think the, the other area that leads to failure quite often is trying from a single approach and uh, just saying that this can't be accomplished. You need a key, a fundamental aspect of this whole thing is trying multiple different approaches from uh, multiple different access sites. So uh, you know the normal, the typical course of the external iliac vein and the common iliac vein and where the IVC is. And uh, in general, you may be able to get through from one approach. Say uh, you try from the internal jugular uh, vein, but for what it's worth, there's no channel uh, from that direction or your catheters and wires keep uh, prolapsing into a collateral. But by switching to a different access, say a, femoral, a left femoral or saphenous access, you may sort of just fly right through uh, an occluded vein segment uh, that you just could not easily get through from the other way. If that doesn't work, hey, maybe you uh, access the right groin the right femoral vein or the right saphenous vein, and maybe the up and over approach uh, works particularly well. So it's a lot of trial and error. And I think a big lesson is uh, you have to be willing to give up a lot of progress that you've made. Uh, If one approach just, you're very, very close to crossing the occlusion, but you just can't get the last couple centimeters, uh, you have to be willing to try to switch your access completely and go to a different approach and try that approach. And that one may be successful. So I think, uh, as Ravi said earlier, a big component of this is patience. And you have to know that uh, this isn't like a lot of other procedures. 
And uh, this isn't going to be a case that will be finished in one hour. It'll be something that takes four to six hours, maybe even longer than six hours. And you have to be willing to uh, give that time to these patients. Okay. That's the biggest thing is, yeah, like, like Jeff said, I mean, you, you, you may have made a ton of purchase and you may think you're in the right channel, but uh, if it's, if it's not working and it's not going and uh, then you, you have to be ready to give it up and, and start, start anew and start over again and try to find a new channel that will eventually get you back to where you need to be. And obviously throughout this process, you're intermittently injecting contrast to make sure you're not extravasating or causing um, a huge problem. And this is, this is the case. It's mostly when you're doing blunt recanalization, uh, when you, when you're switching to sharp techniques, you got to have a lot of other precautionary things that you're going to do. We use ancillary modalities like IVIS uh, as well to ensure that we're in the, in a correct channel and that we didn't cross an artery across another vessel that we wouldn't want to uh, then balloon up and, and cause a major hemorrhage or cause a major complication. Um, so I think uh, another key to this is also using your other imaging modalities in addition to having reviewed your CT venography and, and you know, evaluating all that stuff. Um, also doing real-time assessment after you've successfully rekinalized the channel. Uh, IVIS can be particularly helpful in some situations to try to evaluate your lumen and, and make sure you haven't crossed structures that you don't want to have crossed. So that's after you get through, you know, you might put an IVIS catheter across and just kind of to show that you actually are in the, the native vein? Correct. Yeah. And to make sure you're actually in the native vein and that you haven't crossed some abnormal structure uh, that you didn't want to cross. Um, and this is prior to doing the ballooning. We usually IVIS to ensure that uh, ensure that's the case. Okay. So just to summarize so far, I mean, you know, some of the most important things are multiple access sites, persistence, you know, kind of keeping an open mind and, and patience. And you know, unless you're really, really good like me, it's probably going to take a few hours, correct? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th- I, th- I think uh, the other thing, uh, which we've kind of all alluded to uh, extensively, is uh, some of your equipment. So uh, there's certainly equipment out there to make this process easier. I mean, this process is very difficult, uh, even in skilled hands. So there are definitely devices that can help you do these things. Uh, As Ravi suggested earlier, I mean, in many cases, these can be uh, successfully completed just by using an angled catheter, a straight stiff glide wire, and an angled glide wire. But there are certain devices. uh, Oftentimes, it's difficult to push an 035 catheter, a Berenstein or a vertebral tip catheter through a chronic occlusion. So there are other catheters such as, say, like a Navacross or a Quick Cross catheter, which is a tapered catheter, uh, and they can be very helpful in pushing through or navigating through uh, chronic occlusions. So oftentimes when you can't get across, trying the smaller or tapered catheter can be all you need to uh, get yourself through. The sharp recanalization, the tools you're using, I mean, what's your first step in, re- in sharp recanalization? You, know, you failed to get across with standard blunt recanalization techniques, what do you go to first? So I think, I think, yeah, go ahead. I think, I think it requires a lot of pre-procedure planning as well. And that you review your CT venogram, know exactly what the level of the occlusion is that you're trying to potentially sharp across. A lot of the times these sharp recanalizations, you, you, you've tried everything you get, you get as far as you possibly can. And you're like one centimeter apart from, from each other, from the, 
jugular approach and the and the femoral approach, you're you're very very close, and that that's when we start to think about it being an option. You want to make sure that there's not like a ureter crossing the area, depending on where the occlusion is. Sometimes we'll put in ureteral catheters to kind of mark where the ureter is. You want to make sure there's not an artery in the way as well. So doing IVIS can be helpful to make sure if you're going to do a sharp recanalization, you're not going to traverse an artery in route. And even once you've done that sharp recanalization, you should again IVIS it again to make sure you didn't cross through the artery during a recanalization attempt. Um, so a lot of people use different strategies for sharp recanalization. We typically use the BRK uh, transeptal needles uh, to do our sharp recanalization, but occasionally we'll use a Roshishita system as well. Um, uh, usually we use some sort of targeting technique. So to ensure, you know, in addition to fluoroscopy and doing rotational fluoroscopy to kind of ensure you're aiming in the correct direction, that's particularly important when you're doing central occlusions up in the chest because of the risk of perforating uh, the SVC or brachycephalic vein can be essentially life-threatening uh, in some of those situations. And so we sometimes will use ancillary targeting techniques, including balloons. You can inflate a balloon and target the balloon from another direction. Um, you can also, uh, uh, as Jeff has recently published, I'll let him talk a little bit more about that as far as uh, the amplats or plug targeting and wall stent targeting techniques. Because he can expound on that. So I, th- I think, as Robbie said, uh, in a lot of these cases, you can just get through uh, with sort of standard sharp techniques. Another thing uh, that Ravi alluded to is sometimes just the back end of the wire, as uh, many of us know, just the back end of a, a stiff glide or so forth can can uh, take care of it. But I think, again, as Ravi said, the most important thing is that you have a discussion with the patient beforehand that this is sort of an advanced technique. It is a little bit more of a dangerous technique. It's not something that can't be managed, but we certainly have, as Ravi said, in the upper extremities, had our fair share of cases of uh, pericardial injuries uh, requiring pericardial drains. In the lower extremities for iliocables, you uh, certainly the iliac arteries and uh, aorta are nearby. Uh, so it's sometimes prudent to put a catheter in the aorta or the iliac arteries just to know their proximity to the veins. Uh, in a lot of cases, as Ravi said, you can use a BRK needle and target just a plain snare. Uh, here we tend to like the BRK because it is a little bit, uh, it's a small needle uh, in 018 system. And it also has some directionality to it, uh, so you can aim it a little bit. Uh, in the vast, vast majority of cases, I think you can use it uh, with a snare and target the snare. Uh, but one of the techniques that uh, Dr. Williams came up with here uh, to sort of facilitate everything is the uh, Amplatzer plug technique or the wall stent technique. Uh, and that's uh, in CVIR, CVIR by Minaj Kaja. And uh, essentially what you do is you use the uh, BRK needle, uh, but on the other side, instead of using the two-dimensional snare, uh, you either use an amplatz or plug uh, or a wall stent. And the whole theory is that it's a much larger target. It's a three-dimensional target as opposed to a two-dimensional target. So you partially, I prefer using the wall stent, you partially deploy a wall stent on one side of the occlusion and then uh, you target it with the BRK, you cross the occlusion with the BRK and uh, puncture the partially deployed wall stent uh, with the BRK needle itself. And then you remove the inner stylet, uh, use an 018 wire such as a V18 and trap it inside the wall stent. 
and then resheath the uh, partially deployed wall stent. And essentially that gives you through and through access in that sense. And it just makes it easier when uh, you've tried to target a two-dimensional snare for a long time and been unsuccessful. Okay, that makes sense. I think, I think another dimension about that about that technique that I think is really useful, and and some some people might argue why why don't you just use a balloon and just target a balloon as opposed to targeting you know the amplitzer plug or the wall stent. I think it it makes it easier to actually get it through and through access, and it saves you a step to some degree because you could target a balloon and then pull it up into the vein, but you can't really pull the balloon with the wire trapped inside of it out of the sheath. It usually ends up falling out in the process of trying to pull the balloon out. But the nice thing about the wall stent or the amplatzer plug technique is that the wire actually goes through and gets stuck in the interstices of either the amplatzer plug or the uh, wall stent, and it's an expanded target, so that helps as well. But then by pulling out the um, the wall stent or the amplatzer plug, you actually get through and through access right away. And then you can repurpose it. If you use a wall stent, you can repurpose that wall stent if it's the appropriate. You can use it for uh, your stenting later on. Um, so it, it serves both purposes. With the balloon technique, if you stab the balloon, you probably will have to add a, put a snare in as well and then grab your wire so you can get through and through access. Because ultimately, your goal is to achieve through and through uh, body floss or through and through through access so that you can actually do the reconstruction and stenting. And speaking of stents, uh, you know, once we get across all this, uh, you know, whether we're, we're stuck through wall stents or, or we've gotten through the old fashioned way, uh, although none of these are old fashioned ways. Um, once we've gotten through, uh, what's the next step in terms of, you know, ballooning and then where do you stent and not want to stent? Sure. So I think as uh, Ravi alluded to before, uh, it's very important once you get through and through You've uh, done venography a few times. It's very important to do uh, intravascular to perform intravascular ultrasound after that to make sure that you are in a uh, vein lumen itself and that you're not traversing anything else. Once you get through and through uh, wires, typically in a lot of our cases, uh, it's not just one iliac vein that is uh, involved, but the other side is as well. So the ideal situation would be that you have two wires. Uh, one from a right femoral or uh, right saphenous approach up to the uh, superior vena cava, and then also a wire on the left side. Uh, so you have double wire access, uh, one up each uh, iliac vein. At that point, it's uh, once you're confirmed that you're in a lumen and that you didn't, you're not in a bunch of false passages. It's important to uh, give intraprocedural heparin. Uh, and, uh, so that the patient is anticoagulated so that your stents and so forth don't go down once you place them. Uh, typically in the setting of balloon expand or, uh, self-expanding stents, it's very helpful to angioplasty prior to deploying the stents themselves, because, uh, if you've got some focal narrowings, the stents tend to migrate, uh, and it's not that that can't be recovered and that, uh, that hasn't happened to me numerous times because it certainly has, but it uh, certainly uh, can make you a little anxious and uh, the procedure can become much more complicated quickly. So if you do appropriate planning and you angioplasty everything beforehand, uh, the stents will land well in particular. So after we cross the lesions and have the wires in place, uh, typically uh, the IVC uh, it's prudent to angio- use intravascular ultrasound to guide 
what degree or to what level you're going to angioplasty based on the size of the IVC. Uh, typically, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 24 uh, angioplasty beforehand. Uh, the common iliac veins, typically 16 millimeter, angioplasty them to 16 millimeters. And then uh, the externals, typically uh, to 14 millimeters. Once you've done that, uh, and also confirmed again with venography that there's no extravasation, uh, that uh, everything looks good, then you can uh, begin considering uh, the stenting process. Okay. Um, there is some variability in that. Some some people choose to use occasionally smaller balloons just to confirm that you don't create a, a, a rupture or whatever. Okay. If you're not exactly. confident that you're in the true true actual lumen, it, you might rupture it. You might consider using a smaller balloon and then slowly bring it up from there. Um, obviously, these are different principles. When, you, when you're doing things up in the SVC, you're not going to be using the same sizes, and you'll be using a different set of stents sometimes in some situations. And I guess we can go into that some more as well. Ravi is absolutely right. And I don't, I guess I misspoke. Uh, You shouldn't jump right to an 18 or 24 millimeter balloon in the uh, inferior vena cava. It's sort of a stage fashion, say uh, four millimeters, then eight millimeters, 10, 12, 14. Uh, Certainly jumping right to an 18 or 24 uh, can lead to a catastrophe and (laughs) a disruption of everything. So don't do it that way. But Ravi is absolutely right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, you shouldn't do it, but you can, right? Yeah. That's, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, so Robbie, how far up and down do you routinely stent for these patients? You know, I know we don't want to line everybody all the way down. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah, and curious. I think it also, it, what, what makes it, what plays a role in this as well as whether there's a filter or not as well. And I think filter associated DVT is pretty common. And there's this whole movement about getting filters out and, and trying to prevent this from happening down the line. And, uh, in preventing patients from getting a uh, chronic occlusion below a below a, a long-term indwelling filter. So I think part of it is that we've got the pre-procedure planning that we know there's a filter there, that was the source of the thrombus, and that we're going to remove that filter then and then reconstruct to the level of the renal veins. If for whatever reason, we obviously have so many more advanced techniques for removing filters now, and we can even remove the the so-called unremovable filters like greenfield filters um, and uh, and other types of filters as well, like trapeze and optes. And I know that Jeff has removed many, many of these uh, types of filters in the past uh, successfully without uh, without much difficulty using endobronchial forceps. We've used the laser sheets and all kinds of other uh, ancillary tools to try to remove filters aggressively. But even if uh, he also published this paper saying that, you know, it, it really you don't have to necessarily remove the filter. You can crush the filter off to the side and stent it, stent it away and still maintain good long-term patency of the cava after you stent away a filter as well. Generally, we try to stent up to the level of the renal veins. We try not to stent across the renal veins, though there's also some evidence that stenting across the renal veins, the risk of thrombosis is relatively low and you can stent across it. But in generally speaking, we try to stent to a little bit below the renal veins um, we stent both iliac veins all the way down to um, a little bit above the femoral heads, if possible, and uh, and then um, usually uh, usually that's sufficient to get okay. a good iliopapal reconstruction. Uh, so now taking this a step over to uh, kind of follow up, and that same paper I had uh, brought up above, the one from techniques in VIR, uh, 
David had said, or I'm sorry, Dr. Williams, I've never met, I've never met him. I can't call him David. Uh, he said that uh, the primary mode of stent failure is thrombosis and that the most vulnerable period of stent integrity is the first one to three days. Why is it those first one to three days where you're at risk for failure? I, th- I think it's a combination of uh, you've sort of established a new lumen, a new direction of flow, but there may be still some uh, other re- other uh, vessels that are shunting blood away, and you haven't really reached a steady state of full anticoagulation. So after uh, you've had established flow for a while and you're fully anticoagulated, you're uh, more or less safe. But uh, during that uh, initial period, you're sort of in a tenuous state. Okay. Uh, Do you send these patients home the same day? Uh, So no, usually we keep them overnight. Uh, so after we do the, uh, reconstruction itself, uh, we usually give in the protocol that most of us follow here, uh, is in the room immediately after the procedure, we give 1.5, uh, milligrams or 1.5 times the, uh, body weight, uh, in Lovenox. And, uh, then we send them, uh, to the floor overnight, the following day, we like to uh, see that everything's okay, that they're comfortable, uh, that uh, their hemoglobin is stable. And then we like to start our triple anticoagulation at that point. That being uh, aspirin, 81 milligrams, uh, that's for life. Uh, we also give a loading dose of uh, 300 milligrams of clopetagrel, and that will be continued at 75 milligrams for the next two months. And then we, at that point, uh, continue the Lovenox at one milligram bi one milligram per kilogram BID for two weeks. So the main uh, reason for keeping them is they did have a pretty uh, significant intervention, and we like to make sure that they are fully anticoagulated before they uh, leave the hospital. I think a Got big it. part of that's also the patient education, the opportunity to educate the patient that the onus is really on them to try to keep, you've done this extensive recanalization and reconstruction, and the onus is really on them to make sure that they keep on their anticoagulation because that's your biggest risk of potentially getting post-thrombotic syndrome and getting all these other things is if you don't anticoagulate appropriately, okay. don't remain anticoagulated and therapeutically anticoagulated appropriately, these stents will go down and they'll become symptomatic again and and uh, and have problems down the line. Here, we've been historically uh, doing catheter-based venography at six months, 12 months, and uh, 24 months. And the, the thought is that uh, if you can identify some sort of... Uh, these patients are certainly... Uh, maintaining anticoagulation can be very difficult. And uh, patients uh, often miss doses. They're also often become subtherapeutic. And if you can identify some uh, early stenosis or early occlusion, uh, it's very helpful to manage that early uh, rather than after the reconstruction has entirely thrombosed. So our practice of many of us has been to actually perform catheter-directed venography. But uh, again, there's no uh, hard research on that. And I think everyone uh, across the country does variable things. And I think there's also some, you know, with ultrasound as well, there, there can be some false, false positives where you potentially question that there's clot there, but then we, we've done, we've done cases. It's similar to like tips, 
tips revisions that end up coming up because they think there's a tips occlusion because the velocities have changed. Uh, and then you do the tips venogram and the tips is wide open and there's no pressure gradient whatsoever. I think similar situations have come up where we ultrasound legs and they, they call some questionable chronic clot there or something, and it ends up being completely fine. Um, so I think there is, there is, you know, ultrasound can sometimes be unreliable. Um, but overall, I think relying on the patient's symptoms and symptomatology, as far as whether they're becoming symptomatic again, um, can be the, probably one of the most helpful things in deciding whether a re-intervention is necessary. Sort of a pitfall, I think, of uh, many folks. Uh, after the uh, reconstruction is performed, uh, you lay the stents down and you think, uh, hey, this looks great. Uh, we're finished. I, I can't stress enough uh, the importance of uh, reevaluating the inflow on these patients. So... Uh, I think we all see many, many, many patients who have previously been stented, whether it's in the iliac veins, whether it's in the IBC, uh, wherever. Uh, they had a reconstruction. It actually looks pretty good. And the patient thrombosis shortly after that. And I think a big component is uh, due to poor inflow. So after the stents are placed, after they're angioplastied, uh, it's really prudent to look at the femoral veins and look at the popliteal vein and uh, perhaps even look at the posterior tibial veins. And uh, so after we finish the reconstruction, the majority of us will place a catheter from the internal jugular vein uh, down the leg, uh, at least to the popliteal vein, uh, and perform good venography and also look with intravascular ultrasound and look at the inflow. If the inflow is sluggish, uh, if there are chronic changes of DVT, uh, they need to be addressed. So either the stents can be extended uh, from an internal jugular approach uh, down to, say, the lesser trochanter, or uh, angioplasty uh, should be performed. Uh, because if the inflow is not ideal, uh, these stents will certainly thrombose, and they'll thrombose quickly. And I think that's a huge uh, reason for failure sort of across the country. So uh, you're not done. Once you've just placed the stents, uh, you need to do some additional things. I think that so brings up a great point. Uh, I, I remember these from training where, you know, you, you'd spend all this time getting across and, you know, you get your stents in, they look amazing. And then you can go back down and you image the legs and it just looks like garbage. And, uh, you know, I actually have have been told, you know, I remember Dr. Sudi telling me, he's like, trust me, like you actually can get some very good clinical improvement despite this appearance. But, you know, I remember a lot of the time we'd go back and, and balloon all the way back up. Like, what is your endpoint in the leg? So I think it's, that's sort of when it becomes tough. So I don't think we have a great, great treatment for some of these chronic changes in the femoral and popliteal vein. And they often don't look fantastic, but, uh, I think with a little bit of work, uh, again, usually from an IJ approach, uh, placing a long wire like an Amplatz or a Rosen uh, and cleaning things up. Typically, there have been some attempts to clean up chronic DVT by lysing these regions uh, in the based on data for based on information from the access trial. Uh, some patients I find do actually do better and do show improvement in some of the chronic changes uh, in the deep system uh, through lysis. 
But in general, I think if you just angioplasty these regions with six millimeter, eight millimeter, and 10 millimeter balloons, uh, you will be surprised that the uh, inflow will improve substantially just from that. And you want to just, like I said, evaluate with ultrasound. And when you do uh, venography of the lower extremity, preferably from the popliteal up, uh, you just want to see good inline flow and you want to see abrupt uh, sort of uh, movement of contrast from the popliteal all the way up through your reconstruction. All right. Well, we will call it a day. We'll uh, catch everyone on the next one. We're hoping to bring you guys back for another one. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks again.